Welcome to Accelerated. I'm your host, Vitaly Golem. On this second season of the podcast, we're hearing from some of the global leaders in everything electric and autonomous, moving us quickly into the future. On this episode, we speak to Stefan Kraus. Born to German parents in Colombia, he started his career at BMW in Germany and US, where he rose to become the youngest CFO and board member in the company's history. There, he also served as chairman of Rolls-Royce. He was responsible for the relaunch of the Mini brand and was the original initiator of the BMW i electric vehicle program. He then served as the CFO of Deutsche Bank through the tough financial crisis years and later as an advisor to Warburg Finkus and on the board of Rocket Internet. He moved to California to serve first as a CFO and COO of the EV startup Faraday Future before starting the pioneering and now publicly traded EV company Canoe. Oh yeah, somewhere in between, he found time to serve as the chairman of the Cosmopolitan Hotel in Las Vegas. Wow, what a career. Now, we talked about his beginnings in the industry, thoughts on the EV newcomers versus the automotive titans, autonomy, SPACs, and how he would have thrown it all away to become an entrepreneur earlier. Here's our conversation with Stefan. Stefan, thank you very much for being on Accelerated. Where do we find you today? Yeah, I'm in Switzerland. And uh, thank you for having me and inviting me to this. Glad to have you, and, and it's an honor. So um, why don't we start at the beginning? Uh, how did you start your career in the auto industry? Well, that's, uh, that's interesting. Probably I have to say there's something quite different and unexpected because I started my auto industry being the son of the Volkswagen importer in Colombia. So my family's business was actually in the auto uh, business. And uh, I remember my dad uh, left Germany and, and became an entrepreneur in Colombia by importing Volkswagen. So cars have been a part of my life since the early ages. Yeah. So one thing led to another. Uh, you were, you started your career very and you became one of the youngest, if not the youngest executive at BMW. Tell us a little bit about that story. Yeah. And then obviously after finishing my study, trying to find out what I sh uh, should do with my life, I joined uh, BMW and uh, started a, a career at BMW of about 20 years. Uh, was I really started in the engineering department, putting together price lists. And, uh, you know, this was not the time where everybody had a computer, where we still worked with green screens uh, and uh, developed my career. Yeah, and ended up for the last eight years at BMW being the CFO uh, of BMW, the global CFO of BMW. I was uh, moved into this position in, when I was uh, 38, 39 years old. And at that time, it, I truly was the youngest uh, board member in, in, in Germany. So you, you famously started the BMW i program at uh, BMW, the, the EV program. Tell us a little bit how that, how that was born and what were the discussions like around the uh, boardroom? Yeah, we were, we were obviously, uh, BMW had, uh, as you know, acquired the Rover Group and had, uh, you know, quite a difficult time uh, with it and decided to separate. And I became actually board member after the separation had happened from the Rover Group. We sold Land Rover to Ford and we kept Mini and the company needed to have some refocusing and some realignment. So I was a, a, a member of the board. I was also in, in charge partially of the company strategy. So I had taken a strategy process that I had gotten to know in the US during my times uh, in the US and applied it to BMW. Uh, it's uh, quite an onerous process because it, it, it's not like a consultant comes in and <laughs> works out and gives you a glossy 
piece of paper and with a strategy on it because uh, it really forces the top management team, which in this case was the board of BMW, to sit together and think together about envisioning how the company and what the challenges for the company could be in the future. And I led this process. Um, we actually met as a board over about six weekends in, in a retreat in the Alps that, that BMW owned. And in, in many of preparations and discussions about obviously initially sharing how we believe the future will look like, uh, we had a decision also to make whether to acquire another European combustion uh, engine company, which was one of the options. And the other option was to, to really create a, an electric city car, uh, believing that the future would be electric. And in that realm, we, we decided to, to go uh, with a city car and develop a city car because our belief was that more and more large cities and mega cities across the world were starting to exist and that the mobility in these cities needed to be more sustainable. And that's why I convinced my fellow board members to, to start the project I, like we called it, um, which then turned out at a later stage to also bring the BMW i8 and the BMW i3 to market. So what year was this uh, this program? 2000. This was in 2007. What year was this program started? 2007. Very good. So it, it was already in context where um, there was there was you know, EVs were no secret. Uh, Tesla was quite far along in the process. Yeah. What what was the calculation and and kind of what does it take for a, a legacy brand like that? Uh, famously, Germans are not. Uh, you know, they're not just jumping mm -hmm. on the next thing. No. <laughs> it, it's usually there's usually some thought about yes. it. What what was the discussion? And maybe you can give us some insights. Well, it's a it's a long time ago, but uh, first of all, you, you say that uh, Tesla yes Tesla was underway with the Roadster at that time, right? With the first Roadster and uh, uh, with the Lotus based Roadster. And uh, to be honest, uh, our engineers BMW are still convinced that electric is not the way to go. And there was a very firm conviction that that maybe at some point, you know, you could maybe leave your neighborhood in order not to wake up your neighbors with an electric drive. And, but, you know, for any long distance, you would need a combustion engine. And it, from today's perspective, uh, it's unimaginable, but there was a belief that, you know, electric is not going to work, not for long distance uh, driving. And therefore, obviously, for a brand like BMW was, was not a real option. So in that sense, it was quite a bold move. Um, but obviously, we went with a hybrid, which also expresses a little bit the insecurity. You know, the uh, i3 was uh, not, um, not you know, at the end of the day, a full electric vehicle. Uh, before that, uh, BMW had developed an electric uh, vehicle called the E2, which, which also was a small electric vehicle. So there was some experimenting around electric vehicles uh, before the Project I as well. But that really never you know, led to a production car. It was experimental. It was you know, testing the technology. And yeah, the decision was, was made that we wanted to, you know, to go into small cars was not something BMW was into. We, we liked larger cars and we liked, you know, powerful combustion engine, sporty cars that will go with, with the brand and, and will fit the brand. And at that time, obviously, the decision was only made. We needed to reduce our carbon footprint by the rules that were set out for the auto industry. And uh, looking at the fact that we wanted to continue to sell 12-cylinder and 8-cylinder 
combustion engines and, and large diesel engines, we needed to have something to balance. And that, that was, to be honest, a big driver of deciding to build a small car brand with a hybrid engine to kind of get to the average, you know, fleet, fleet consumption. And, and that, that was a driver at that time. It wasn't necessarily, you know, a visionary view. It was just some math that, you know, we had to implement to, to make sure that the company wouldn't have to pay substantial fines down the road by achieving its fleet emissions target. So, so government regulations, of course, pushed, uh, yes. pushed BMW into this direction. Yes. And then certainly California like was always a concern. California was a large market for BMW. Um, you know, as a, as a state, it's part of the U.S., but uh, many, many years, California was the fifth largest market for BMW. Just the state of California was an important market. And obviously, also legislation there, you know, was pushing for zero emission vehicles and, and having a share in zero emission vehicles. So, yeah, it definitely was regulation was an important aspect of that decision. And then you decided to... Uh to jump out of the a very well-established corporate career at some point and move to California and and start and uh, you get attracted to Faraday. So you've shared that, a little bit of that story with me before. Uh, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how that came about and, and what made you what made it so special that you decided to change careers essentially. Well, I had I had left uh, Deutsche Bank after also eight years being the CFO at Deutsche Bank during the crisis years, which uh, obviously were quite interesting. So I actually had a total of 15 years being a, a member of a German DAX company. Uh, mostly I was CFO. I also had some other roles at BMW. I also did sales and marketing and Deutsche Bank. I also led the transaction bank and the bad bank for a while as board member. But, um, you know, I had been in this routine of a CFO, quarterly reports and AGMs and, and you know, all this regular agenda that you have to do. And I honestly was a little bit tired of it. So I decided not to go back to do the same for another 20 years that I still had ahead of me in, in terms of working. And I went to London for a little bit, uh, worked uh, for Warburg Pincus, the private equity firm, and, and was trying to figure out what to do next. And to be honest, I got through a headhunter, I got the offer uh, to join uh, Faraday Future. Uh, and... I took the time to look at the opportunity because auto and auto industry was still appealing to me and and I, I visited uh, the company and uh, you know I visited with the man management uh, team back then and I was convinced there was a visionary idea and uh, there was a an excellent team of people uh, that was put together and some good technology developed and and that intrigued me so I decided to move to California and start working with Faraday. And, and uh, I mean, Faraday, you know, famously, the financing dried up. Uh, maybe you can share a little bit about kind of the, the quick the quick shift you then made to Canoe and, and kind of what, what happened with Faraday in your eyes. Well, and I think, I think like, uh, and I, I don't think it's so different. Many of the startups at that time uh, across the board, you know, had difficulties in finding funds. The, what we see in the last year wasn't yet the case that, uh, you know, uh, the capital markets had discovered electric mobility as the next big thing. You know, um, I think all of these companies, you know, we really had to fight for funding. Yeah. And especially in the, in the car industry, as, as you know, we tell you from your daily, it, it's just a lot of money. You need to build a car and 
you need to develop a factory and develop a sales and service organization. It's just a huge investment, right? And it's, uh, it's very atypical because generally, you know, you have these tech startups in California and, you know, they'll find with 20 or 80 million and they can build a business model. But in a car company, you're in for a billion plus, right? And that's just a lot of money to invest into a startup. So the method used back then is that you would go through several funding rounds, right? And uh, the problem was always that on every one of these funding rounds, sometimes you got stuck. Yeah, you didn't get the money and then, you know, your entire management team ended up in fundraising and due diligences instead of working on product and customers and, and factories and, and developing the project. And that, that, that was the same, obviously, for Faraday. It was a, was a challenge to find uh, funding at a certain point of time. Later on, all of a sudden, there was a lot of funding. And then it went back to not having funding. And But this is not dissimilar from what happened to Lucid in the early days, you know, went through the same routine. And to be honest, we know from Tesla that for a long period of time it was, was similar. So I think that's that's what happened to Faraday. He got, got stuck uh, and, uh, you know, I decided to move on and uh, start decided to, to form an own electric car, car company with Canoe. Now, Canoe is uh, quite a different uh, vision originally than just another EV. So maybe you can talk a little bit about the original vision of Canoe. We were a group of people that, you know, had gone through a couple of the startup, you know, had really good sense for the EV industry and at that point in time. And as we started in December of 17, yeah, there were so many startups, you know, many years ahead of us, right? They, they had, you know, developed product already and, and we started. So it was clear to us that to do something that well, like everybody you know most of these companies at that point in time were trying to be tesla killers right that, that was kind of the most generally you know you know lucid was trying to do this faraday was trying to do this and 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 you know many others and they all were, were just trying to be the better faster bigger more expensive or more performant tesla right so that was kind of uh, what these companies were doing and when we sat together to kind of think about what we should do with Canoe, it was clear to us that that would not, that would not score anymore, right? That there were enough companies trying to be just Tesla killers. So we did a, we did an analysis of what what the world really needed, and um, and we we started to think about also what the big advantage of electric drivetrains are. And the interesting part for us was that. Nobody was really redesigning the vehicles based on the fact that the architecture of the vehicle in electric is different than the architecture of a combustion engine vehicle. And I remember we had these charts where we showed that at the end, a combustion engine car is today still designed in what we call the three box design yeah, that comes from the horse carriages. You know, in a horse carriage, you had the, the engine, which are the horses in the front, and then you had the passenger box in the middle. And then you had the luggage compartment in the back. And if you think about most of the combustion engine cars were designed the same way, yeah, because we replaced the horse with an engine and we kept the passenger cabin. And you know, then we generally have a trunk in the back. And that that over a hundred years in vehicle development and design, that principle stayed. And it was so interesting to us to see that you know the first electric vehicles, like you see on a Tesla. Model 90 didn't rethink the architecture of the vehicle, but just had a, you know, a frunk, yeah, because there was no engine anymore, a hole in the front and a hole right. in the back. 
And if you know, people use their trunks in 1% of the time they own their car. So this is wasted space. And on the other hand, we saw that people are buying ever bigger SUVs. So there was clearly a need for space. And we very strongly felt that this was the big advantage of electric drivetrain. If you would be able to build a very flat floor skateboard, put in a steer-by-wire system so we can put the steering wheel anywhere we want it, we could build a vehicle that from the outside was quite small, but from the inside offered the same space than a large SUV. And that was that was what, what said, that's different. And then, you know, I was always a big fan of subscription. I think subscription in vehicles will work in the future. And, uh, and then combine it with a business model that was also different. So we had these two pillars. You said, we're going to build a different vehicle from an architecture point of view. The first vehicle that really uses to its fullest extent the opportunity that an electric uh, drivetrain uh, offers. And then we'll create a business model that offers these vehicles and subscription, mainly to solve for the high acquisition price that electric vehicles usually have and where too many people cannot afford electric vehicles and uh, provide their contribution to the environment because the the acquisition cost is so high, while it's obviously total cost of operating an electric vehicle is much lower than operating a combustion engine. So that was that was what the initial thought was. So our designer started to, to draw what this is. And you have to think about today in a combustion engine vehicle, you know, if, if I w were to take the whole space of a vehicle, yeah, about almost 60% of the vehicle, sometimes even 70%, of the space of the vehicle is being used to stuff all these things, the technology in that you need. You know, you have a big engine, you have a big gas tank, you know, you have struts, you have you have all this. So, so if you think about how much space is wasted to put all these components into the vehicle, and then how we cram people, all the packaging, all the packaging, and how we cram people into yep. into a passenger cabin. So we wanted to solve that problem, and that's how we started the idea of kind of. And then uh, Canoe is one of the companies that uh, went went out via SPAC. I want to come back to the SPAC's question in, in a second here, but um, after after the company got funded and, and went public, you you left, and the company changed direction a little bit. What are your thoughts on kind of the new direction for the company? I think that's uh, always a prerogative of a new management team to take a different view and uh, develop develop the the new business. I once heard many, many years ago at Deutsche Bank, uh, somebody made this joke is who are the two worst employees of a company? And uh, the answer to that question is always it's it's your predecessor first and then it's your successor after. <laughs> and I always thought that statement had, a, right. had something true. So I, I started not to criticize nor my predecessors nor my successors in what they do. I, I think... Uh, They'll, they'll have their good reasons uh, to, to move the company to where they believe it will be successful. And, uh, and at the end of the day, over time, we will, we will see. Yeah, I'm personally, um, I like very much what we did at Canoe. It was very differentiated. Um, but sometimes also it was also difficult because people that, you know, were not at the forefront yeah, and didn't get and didn't understand what subscription is and how it works because they didn't understand the math or they didn't understand why electric cars will look different in the future. Uh, it was also sometimes difficult. So sometimes when you're at the forefront of developing something new, you might not find everybody applauding. So that's the downside 
if you if you a little bit less traditional if you're more traditional you get quicker applause yeah but the question that's what something we learned at bmw sometimes the hard way if if you get applause immediately it may not last for very long right and uh, th this this well, no, is nobody's exciting. applauding the, the new grills at the new grills at bmw yeah, but I, you I will see a... in in a year or two for, <laughs> from now yeah, people are gonna like yeah. it and that's something i learned at design bmw if and I remember we had the That's BMW true. 8 series, right? There was a car that immediately got applause. It looked really, really good. And it was dead after two years. After two years, it looked like an old car, right? So designers at BMW, mm -hmm. Chris Bangley always uh, told me, and I kept this always in mind, if you, a car needs to have an edge and a design needs to be an edge and, and there needs to be an eye catcher. And it's totally okay at, at the beginning, you don't like it at all, right? Uh, because your eyes and 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 if you transfer to to be honest, if you look, I don't know. I'm sure you have some pictures uh, from the '90s how you dressed and and from the '80s how people dressed in the '70s. You know they were convinced that this was nice and beautiful, and we look at it today and it's horrible, right? And I right. I, I know uh, from from my daughters, you know, uh, sometimes when a new fashion comes around, like completely ripped off jeans. The first reaction is, oh my God, we're going to wear this. And uh, two months later, everybody's running around with it, right? So there you see that the human eye, you know, wants to wants to see something different. And this different that first is perceived as being ugly, very quickly gets adopted and then becomes the fashion, right? And, uh, and that's the same with car design, right? And therefore... You know, we'll, we'll see what happens with uh, the Cybertruck yeah, over time. It was a good. I, I, I personally st still think it's a. <laughs> yeah, but you would see. You would see uh, quite an awkward, awkward yeah. design. But you would see, and I'm pretty sure that, uh, and you, and you see the first designers taking ideas and cues from this type of a design, and it's it, it it's it's gonna move. You know, car design in a different direction. So I liked that. I I think it was a bold move, uh, and. Uh, and it's it's certainly a different vehicle, and when you drive around this in the the usual traffic, because to be honest, most cars look alike today, right? So they're all done in yeah, in absolutely. So there's not. I always laugh. That's why I like to to uh, collect old cars because each one of these cars still had character and had design, and obviously today at the end of the day, most of the cars look the same, right? So. I think all the homologation standards are are really controlling the envelope of design. Yeah. Not to get too 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 deep into that rabbit hole, but speaking of BMW designers, you also helped uh, Henrik Fisker uh, take Fisker uh, through the SPAC process as well. Um, you know, EVs are EVs are not a secret anymore. Uh, I remember when I was working with uh, with Remac a few years back out of Croatia, Remac Automobili. Um, it was very difficult fundraise, uh, you know, just what, four or five years ago that we went through and uh, nobody would touch EVs. But now EVs are the worst kept secret and, and mm -hmm. uh, really, really hot space. What do you think, you know, we talked about this briefly before as well, but I thought your, your, your point was very interesting. Who do you think will succeed? Do you think startups have a, have a, a better chance of succeeding and building new uh, new car brands or do you think the legacy auto brands will uh, will ultimately win the marathon because they have the strength in manufacturing supply chains and, and kind of brand recognition what are your thoughts kind of in that in that race between new brands and, and traditional brands yeah so so obviously and that's uh, so this is a, first a very good question and we've, we've uh, obviously have been asked this question very often 
I, I'm personally siding on the new entrance. I think the new entrance will win this battle. Uh, and the, the uh, so far, with a very few exceptions, you see how the big manufacturers are really struggling to move into EV. Because normally you should have said, after Tesla's success, that now is at least four or five years old, right? That all these companies should have woken up and started to move into electric faster. You know, they don't have the fundraising problem. They don't have the resource problem. They don't have to build factories, right? They have everything at their hands and they could have moved. And you see how important, how, how interesting it is. These companies uh, have learned to be competitive in combustion engine technology. They're, they know that they differentiate themselves through three and six and eight and 12 cylinder engines and gearboxes uh, with seven gears and drivetrains that are quite complicated to keep a combustion engine vehicle on the road. And, and at the end of the day, powertrain dominance was something very important in the past competition. It's not important anymore. And what's important is, is obviously, for example, your software competence to, to do over-the-air updates on your vehicles, right? These companies can't do it. They don't have the people mm -hmm. to do it. They don't have the culture to do it. You know, IT people in car manufacturers are always treated like citizens of second class, right? Because, uh, you know, the true people in the company, they're engineers and they develop vehicles, right? And and therefore these companies... Mechanical engineers. Yeah, so. they're mechanical <laughs> engineers, right? And they... And they uh, and therefore, obviously, they don't get the right people, right? They don't get the talented people to, to help them evolve their software platform. And some of them have so much money, they hire than 2,000 people. And these 2,000 people produce less software than, you know, in California, uh, a focus group of, of 50. Yeah. And, and, and it, it's for me. So for me, it's pretty clear. I don't think culturally most of these companies will do the shift, number one, right? I think they're all struggling. I see how CEOs that are trying to move in Germany, their companies into electric still get criticized, right? I see how, for example, you know, obviously because they're still selling lots of combustion engine vehicles, they continue to develop combustion engine vehicles. So I think the, on the cultural front and on the technology front, they will lose the battle against the much quicker moving, you know, and nimble uh, small players. You know, we at the end at Canoe had at the peak about 350 engineers and, and designers and people in the company, we could develop a full car. At BMW, I remember, you know, we had thousands of people in order to develop a, a, a car. And, you know, the, the cost was a couple of hundred million at Canoe and to develop a three series at BMW was, a, was in the billions, right? So it just, it just, I don't think they, they'll get a custom to Nimbly and the future competition is certainly still around design, but it's around connectivity and the drivetrain won't matter because all the electric drivetrains are fast. The batteries are always heavy and at the bottom. So these cars won't turn over. You don't need this, uh, you know, expensive drivetrain technology to keep the car on the road. So that their competitive strengths just don't matter anymore. Right. And they're not realizing that that's the big change. It's not about just plugging in an electric. It's not better. And then last but not least, why well, be the, the final killer will come. All these cars, all these companies, these OEMs are leasing lots of combustion engine vehicles. And then you will see in mm -hmm. five to six years when consumers don't buy combustion engine vehicles and the residual value losses in these companies will be huge. 
Interesting, and because they have these uh, all these leases, all these, yeah, the top uh, card, every, combustion. Yeah, every day yeah, today, the on the balance yeah, sheet, yeah. every day today, all these companies are putting out cars on leases, and they will come back in three to five years and will be worth nothing, right? Because there will be no buyers for used combustion engine vehicles, in my mind, and therefore, and therefore, the 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 truth is at the end of the day, if if you ask me, and that's always a question to to finally answer your question. So if you give me a hundred dollars and tell me I should invest a hundred dollars in a pure play electric company or invest the same hundred dollars in a large OEM, I know that 70 of my hundred dollars in the large OEM will be, have to be used for losses to get rid of the combustion engine business and the legacy assets, legacy factories, legacy people, residual values. Whilst if I put my hundred in, in a, in a pure play electric car company, a hundred will go towards the future, right? And that's that's for me ultimately why I believe uh, the big OEMs will not win this battle. That's interesting. So um, to be devil's advocate, uh, let's say perhaps the big the big players, the big legacy players, were waiting for the market to materialize because you can argue that you know Tesla, as long as it's been around, uh, what almost twenty years now. Uh, they still have yet to really turn a profit from selling vehicles. All the profits that they've made are from selling credits to the old, <laughs> the old players. Now they're starting to turn over and not, not need to buy those credits, and you know, selling Bitcoin or whatever else they're selling. Um, so I, I guess you know that that's one argument. The other is it seems uh, in the, in year twenty one twenty two model year we're seeing something like thirty EVs launch from everybody: GM, Ford. Uh, BMW, Mercedes, uh, etc., uh, along with the other players, Volkswagen, of course. Um, don't you think that uh, they were just ready? They were trying to time it, and they they were they're just being conservative and not willing to lose money uh, while the market is not there yet, and they're just using Tesla as a kamikaze to build the market. <laughs> what do you think about that yes. angle? Uh, I think I think to start with the the reason the second uh, problem with that thought process is combustion engine was about selling vehicles and I do believe that uh, as the world has evolved the truth is nobody's really selling vehicles anymore these vehicles are all going on monthly payments and therefore subscription model and monthly payments and the the reason obviously is uh, it doesn't matter what the what the manufacturers did. I think that we needed to uh, we need to come also a different way on how we use these vehicles and how they're being you know sold or brought into into the market. That's why I was a big fan of subscription because that the problem way too many people today look at their car purchase decision and look at the acquisition price only. Yeah, and that's why they're deterred to buy an electric vehicle, not understanding that over life the electric vehicle will be you know much less expensive to them than. The combustion engine vehicle. So I think there's the, the problem is we need a more radical change in in how we look at this change over and what the skills are that you need to have to do this change over. I know that that many of these OMs are bringing vehicles to the market. I ask you how many of them can over the air update their software? It's a good question. I think I think Mercedes uh, announced that they are planning capable, to do it, but, but we'll see. But they're we'll not see. there we'll yet. See. We'll see how so it that's goes. my point. So in my mind, the true innovation <laughs> yeah. that Tesla brought, yeah, is you know they can update the software, software side. side. So obviously that makes you know yeah, if it, with my my understanding is that still if I buy a VW, I have to go into the shop to get my software updated, right? And it, they have to put it onto a system and 
and charge and, and many of these electric cars too. So this radical rethinking that is not just and that's exactly the the problem that they're approaching. It's just stucking in an electric drivetrain into an existing vehicle and continue to sell them the same and service them the same and manufacture them the same. That's the problem, right? Uh, I think that it, it, it will be very important to understand what this that is a more radical change and they're designing them the same, by the way. They still look like combustion engine vehicles. And I think that that's, that's the, the failure. And I was I always make some fun and I encourage you and, and the listeners to do it. Just, you know, we had one change over when we went from the horse, right? We went to the car. And if you read the fears and the approach, there's articles out why the horse will win, right? And when you read, yeah, right. when you when you approach a car with a horse thinking, then of course the horse will win. And I think that's exactly what's happening right now. If you approach this industry with a combustion engine engine thinking, right, then of course the combustion engine will win. And ironically, those first uh, those first horseless carriages were electric. Yes, there was there was the other interesting part. <laughs> the first ones were, or many of them were electric yeah. at the beginning. Yeah. So I, I think if you ask me where I would put my hundred dollars investment into, I go pure play. Interesting. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you in part. I, I, I'm a big <laughs> fan of uh, certain certain car brands. I won't mention. Uh, that that are legacy and have some really interesting legacy, but uh, certainly a big fan of new ones. So speaking of that, I think one of the key areas, uh, especially when we're talking about consumer vehicles, a uh, big part of the investment is building the brand. And um, it's not just engineering. It, it's it's making people fall in love and have a, this emotional, irrational reaction uh, to a vehicle, right? And and for me, I mean, I started working full time at at fifteen because I fell in love with cars and I wanted a nice car, you know, or some, some, you know, not, not beater, uh, when I turned 16 and could drive in California, I don't know what it is these days. And my parents, they said, well, if you want a car, go get a job and you can buy yourself a car. And that's exactly what I did. But, um, this irrational falling in love with, with vehicles, um, and building a brand, you know, uh, there are lots of new ones out there. Um, I think for example, Rivian is doing a phenomenal job of, of building a brand and building a community and culture around their brand. What are some of your favorites, uh, that you think are doing it well and what, what are they doing well? Well, I think Tesla did an outstanding job. If I ask my seven year old, uh, what his favorite car brand is, he says Tesla. He doesn't say BMW anymore, Mercedes, or or something, or Porsche. Uh -oh. yeah? He says Tesla, <laughs> and I think you you you'll find that increasingly it's these new brands that are appealing to to the young people because you know we also didn't like to drive our parents' brands, and and we we and, and therefore there's also a brand transition, right? And these new brands tend to be younger brands and tend to cater to a younger audience as well. And that's going to be the big benefit. So I, I can say, uh, I think many are doing a job for Tesla first. You know, you, you talked about Rivian. I do agree that, you know, they've made their name known and uh, obviously, and they've gone through quite a transition from originally being, you know, one type of a company and now moving a little bit into a different different which always is a little bit of a challenge when you start a brand but i think lucid is doing a great great job as well in creating a good brand it's it's a believable uh brand so i think that there's um there's a couple of good and honestly in china neo did a super good good uh, exercise in creating a brand and creating a, a whole lifestyle uh, around it 
and uh, yes at the end of the day there's there's you, you see these brands up and coming and there will be a few ones that i also believe will be able to achieve the same When companies start to catch fire and blitzscale and look for capital to fuel that growth or look to find the right exit strategy, they often seek the counsel of investment bankers. At Drakestar Partners, we work with some of the leading companies in global tech on capital raises, M&A, corporate carve-outs, SPACs, and much more. And we're pretty good at it. Our team of over 100 technology sector experts across nine offices in six countries is comprised of not only career bankers, but experienced executive, venture investors, and technologists. Drakestar Partners is the number one ranked and fastest growing mid-market investment bank across the U.S. and Europe. While I focus on mobility and energy transition sector, along with all things Silicon Valley, my partners from the Pacific to the Atlantic and around the world lead in software, media, communications, and everything in between. Learn more about us at drakestar.com. Now, let's switch gears a little bit to autonomy. When do you think, you know, from your experience, do you think true autonomy will be available and what market segments are going to be the first? So I, I firmly believe that highway tra uh, traffic will be the first on longer distances. Uh, because it's, honestly, all the systems we have today on the, and I do it regularly, you know, I, I and, and this is, you know, I've, I've used Teslas and I've used uh, BMWs and Mercedeses. Uh, automated uh, autopilot systems and they're already super good right so i think the step to just uh, plug in the exit on the highway you want to exit and have the navigation system control and because the the, the highway driving is kind of a little bit you know boring and dumb and if you drive over longer distances why don't why wouldn't we let the computers drive probably safer probably could we could increase safely the speed on highways and I think to, to, you'll, you'll get people to buy into this quite rapidly. So if you ask me based on where we stand today with autopilot systems, I think in five years we could have dedicated lanes on highways for complete autonomous vehicles. But these will be, I think what you're describing is level three, right? These are vehicles that are capable of limited autonomy um, are in certain areas. No, I would, I would talk uh, what full about, autonomy. I would uh, talk that you can fully autonomy to drive that you don't you don't have the driver have the driver to focus anymore or interject. The vehicle might be still able to do both, but the vehicle itself in that mode will be drive fully autonomous. Today, obviously, the driver still needs to be attentive. The driver is still responsible. So today it's like we we call it kind of level yeah. two point nine, 2 right? Level two point nine autonomy, where mm -hmm. it's to stay legal, yeah, to stay um, legal. <laughs> within the constructs of, of legislation, but um, but I mean level three is is you don't have to pay attention. But then what I what I mean is more level five, right? Yeah, that means no I mean, steering wheel, no, no controls yeah. for the vehicle. Yeah. You you move them away, and the car drives by itself. That's that's how I would see a, a trend in five years could be because the technology is there already, and the cars could do it, right? And the second is what I've seen, obviously, retirement communities, for example, closed communities, they will also, in mm -hmm. my mind, in five years, have, have autonomous mobility. So kind of slow, slow speed, uh, speed, slow speed, and, but, and but, very but a controlled environment, you, you can have that in five years, and the technology is there. And then the most difficult will be inner city traffic. I think this is still a challenge. That's going to be the last one to go. Yeah. Now, um, 
SPACs, you know, we touched on this already a little bit, but I wanted to dig a little bit deeper because that's a, that's become a four-letter word this year. SPACs uh, were very hot in the EV space, you know, starting from about mid-year 2020. Um, there were a lot of high-profile projects that uh, kind of accelerated and compressed their fundraising and became public companies. Assuming the audience knows uh, knows a bit about the space, you know, what do you think, now that the hype has receded, do you think the SPACs are here to stay? I mean, this is more for your CFO hat and <laughs> uh, a public company CFO. What do, you, what do you think about SPACs and that vehicle, uh, the financial vehicle, I should say, and, and is it here to stay? I'm, I'm only to disclose it. I'm a big fan of SPACs. I think this is a great tool to use. I think it's, uh, because ultimately it's a great tool to really move humanity forward because it does provide good ideas funding, right? It does provide sustainable ideas funding. So I think I think that's great news, and at the end of the day, it also allows investors that traditionally cannot participate in the value creation of new ideas. Because generally, that's open to private markets, but not the public markets. And uh, sometimes the enormous value development that that you could experience um, as a private investor, you can't as a public investor. And I think this this for me, it's a great tool because it fulfills these two things. It will help the world progress faster and it will enable more people to participate in the wealth creation that new technologies, new ideas you know, generate. And that's why, why I think, will we have accidents? Of course we will have accidents. Every time we start something new, we first have accidents and then we make the system safer. And um, I just had a, a discussion with the German uh, newspaper and I said to them the same you know at the beginning of flying airplanes we had a lot of accidents and we had a lot of casualties but we didn't stop flying we didn't take this and that's why when people ask me now should we abolish the specs again I look at them and said well we didn't stop flying and it was the right thing to do because of the benefits of flying and that's the same with specs we shouldn't stop specs we should make the whole system safer we should make sure that people don't take advantage yeah, of retail investors and we should make sure that um, these companies comply with the, the, the rules of the game in public markets and understand them and we should we should make sure that you know spec teams really go out to to buy good companies and take this seriously and go through their due diligence and instead of just flipping companies right and and trying to make a, a quick buck but I think this this all we can manage as we improve the systems. But for me, specs are here to stay. They're an excellent vehicle to give both management teams enough funding to realize their projects and improve the world. And uh, as I said, and also give more people the ability to participate in value creation. It's interesting. I mean, it, it, on the, uh, if we kind of zoom out a little bit, we can see that you know, the dot-com days and uh, pre-Enron, it was a lot easier to take a company public in the U.S. But then we had uh, the new SOX regulation, Cyber Oxley, um, that made it much more difficult and much more costly and time-consuming time for companies to go public, where SPACs have existed for a long time for different purposes. And uh, somewhere along the line, somebody realized that, hey, we can use these vehicles to essentially accelerate companies uh, and get them public a lot earlier. Uh, so it seems like we're we're kind of going you know back and forth, um, you know the pendulum is swinging back and forth, and it's interesting to see if you know if we don't have big any big crashes as you described it, um, 
hopefully these vehicles will stay and there will be enough trust from the public company, uh, public market investors uh, to, to make sure that this is a, a very viable alternative uh, than doing a traditional IPO, which can take twice as long and cost a lot more for companies to go yep. through. So I, I very much agree with you there. So I wanted to, uh, I wanted to thank you for your time and close with one last question. Okay. <laughs> now, um, you know, since I turned, since I got into my forties, I've been asking myself this, you know, I learned a lot and, uh, and then I, I like to ask this question is knowing what you know now, what advice would you give yourself, you know, graduating undergrad, let's say at 22 plus minus when you were just starting your career, knowing what you know now, what have you done differently or, or faster or, um, or haven't done maybe? Well, uh, maybe there's two things that occurred to me to answer your question. Uh, the, the first one, I would have probably gotten to be an entrepreneur sooner. Uh, I was happy to be an employee of large companies first. I learned a lot. Uh, I was fortunate enough that they also moved me through the ranks quite rapidly and I could, you know, experience and learn different things. So I experienced that. But, but maybe um, I should have done this a little bit shorter than, you know, spent 20 years at BMW and then eight years at Deutsche, uh, 28 years uh, in this. I should have probably moved to become an entrepreneur sooner. Um, and of course, life was the, the problem was that life was comfortable. You know, you had a paycheck, you had not to worry about fundraising and things like that. So, right. so and it was an interesting <laughs> job, of course, in, in all cases. And, and therefore, that, that would be the one advice. The second advice, I, I to be honest, uh, I uh, very much underestimated the power of having a good network, right? And um, because that's not what you learn in business school necessarily. Yeah, you learn how to value, especially you know when when you have a CFO career, everything is about about numbers and and concepts and theories. And obviously, I, I was also part of many of the management fads that. Uh, you know, turned over the years and, and was involved in process engineering and Six Sigma and all of these things that we like to do. But to be honest, and that's something I learned over the last, uh, I would say, eight years is it's it's the power of your network that really defines you and, and, and the, 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 the people you have access, the people you've learned from. So what I definitely would, would do, honestly, I used to, to be of the opinion that to spend a lot of time in cultivating your network and your relationships was a little bit of a waste of time. And I was going to, you know, do my job and work. And, 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 mm -hmm. and, and I must say, I should have stroken sometimes a better balance between, you know, cultivating, developing, you know, exploring and developing my network versus just doing work, right. And, and just focusing on getting stuff done. Yeah. So, so, so that, that, that's probably what the two answers I'll give you on your last question. Maybe that's the difference between uh, being a corporate finance expert and, uh, and choosing that path versus being uh, the number one sales guy as the CEO yes. of, a, <laughs> of a startup. Exactly. Stefan, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure yeah. to always talk to, talk to you always and, and work uh, shoulder to shoulder with you yeah. on these exciting projects we're working yeah, on. For sure. Uh, so I really appreciate yeah. you, you, uh, you being on with us yeah. on Accelerator. No, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Uh, great idea. Thanks for inviting me and having me. And uh, oh, good luck to everyone. This was our conversation with Stefan Krauss, former CFO of BMW and Deutsche Bank turned EV entrepreneur. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you did enjoy this episode, don't forget to give us five stars in your podcast app and share it with your friends. 
see you in the next one. And in the meantime, you can always find me at golem.net.